You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. At Cross and Crown, we believe the Bible is God's word. So when we read the Bible, God is speaking. Today's passage is from Mark chapter 13, verses 1 to 37. So if you would follow along with me in your Bibles, or the passage will be displayed on the screen behind me. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look what massive stones, what impressive buildings. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives across from the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Jesus told them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must take place, but it is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of the birth pains. But you, be on your guard. They will hand you over to local courts, and you will be flogged in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me, as a witness to them. And it is necessary that the gospel be preached to all nations. So when they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry beforehand what you will say, but say whatever is given to you at the time, for it isn't you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and the father his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination of desolation, standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the the housetop must not come down or go in to get anything out of his house, and a man in the field must not go back to get his coat. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Pray it won't happen in winter, for those will be the days of tribulation, the kind that hasn't been from the beginning of creation until now and never will be again. If the Lord had not cut those days short, no one would be saved. But he cut those days short for the sake of the elect whom he chose. Then if anyone tells you, see, here is the Messiah, see there, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will rise and will perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. And you must watch. I have told you everything in advance. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will be falling from the sky and the powers in the heaven will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. He will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its branch becomes tender and sprouts leaves, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see these things happening, 
recognize that he is near at the door. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now concerning that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Watch, be alert, for you don't know when the time is coming. It is like a man on a journey who left his house, gave authority to his servants, gave each one his work, and commanded the doorkeeper to be alert. Therefore, be alert, since you don't know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight, or at the crowing of the rooster, or early in the morning. Otherwise, when he comes suddenly, he might find you sleeping. And I say to you, I say to everyone, be alert. God, um, this is a tougher passage, but one where we know that you have something important to say to us today. And so we ask in your kindness that you might speak to us. You might give us humble hearts, remove those distractions from our minds so that we might focus deeply on your word. And these things we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but I, I, like, I suspect we all have that one friend, don't we? That one friend who's always late. That friend for whom when they say, I'm coming, really just means I'll be there within the next, you know, three hours. And if you've ever been in a position where you're waiting for that friend, you do feel a bit like a fool for waiting, don't you? I remember a few months ago, I had dinner with a friend arranged for 6.30 in the evening. That's a very, very civilized time. 6.30, right? I arrived at 6.25, which is, can I say, the polite thing to do. Uh, come five minutes early. If you arrive before, then just sit in your car and then come out later, right? But I arrived there at 6.25, and I sat there in the restaurant, alone, waiting for 45 minutes. And you could, as you sat there, right, you could feel, people, people didn't even need to say it, but, but you could feel what every patron in that restaurant was thinking, right? Oh, poor man. I hate to be him. It's been stood up. It was not a date, okay? But it was just a dinner, right? And I, as I waited for my friend, I just kept looking at the door thinking, maybe that's her. Not, not, not her. And in the end, all I wanted to do was stand up and walk out, leave her with the bill, see if she'll ever be late again. The truth is, the truth is, I felt like a fool for waiting. And I kept wondering, when will my friend come? And it's a little bit comical, but on one level, I actually think that's something of how we Christians feel as we wait for Jesus to return. It is actually one of his most precious and yet awkward promises that he makes in the Bible. In fact, it's the final promise that he makes in the Bible. He says, literally, I am coming soon. But it doesn't feel like it, does it? In fact, it feels like he's never going to come. Like we're waiting for nothing. That like all those patrons at the restaurant, our friends are looking at us, sitting at the table, waiting for Jesus, all alone. And we feel like a fool for waiting, don't we? Why don't we just stand up, walk out, leave Jesus with the bill? Because if Jesus is never going to come, why stay? Why trust him? 
Why keep following him? Why keep living for him? We're just fools for waiting, aren't we? We don't think about it much as Christians, but we ought to. We don't think about the coming of our Lord as often as we ought to, but we should. We ask that question, when will Jesus come? And I want to say that something of the question that we actually find in today's passage. This is what Jesus' disciples are asking him, when will your kingdom come? Now, we need to understand Jesus' whole mission has been about his kingdom. It's been about bringing God's beautiful reign and blessed rule into our world, over every heart in our world. Gosh, Jesus' first words in Mark's gospel are this. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And throughout chapters 1 to 11, what did we see? We saw pictures of the kingdom, images of what it's like to live under the rule and reign of God. What does it look like to live with Jesus as our king? It means living in a kingdom where darkness is dispelled, where sickness is healed, where the vulnerable are protected. It means living in a kingdom for the least and the lowly, the weak and the powerless and the poor and the needy. I don't know about you, but when I look at the brokenness of our world, I want to live in a kingdom like that. But you know, at the heart of God's kingdom is the temple. It's his throne. It's the place from which he offers forgiveness to the nations. You see, at the heart of the kingdom is the king. It's God. He is what makes his kingdom so great. And the temple is the symbol of all of who God is. It is the place where he rules and reigns. That's the throne. That's the palace. That's where God lives. It represents God himself. But in chapter 11, Jesus said something really strange, didn't he? He said, in order to bring in God's kingdom, I'm going to have to destroy this temple. In order to bring in God's kingdom, I'm going to have to destroy this temple. And you're thinking, what? What are you? The temple's good. The temple's where God dwells. It's what makes the kingdom the kingdom. It's the king. But you see, the temple, which should have been the throne of glory, had become a house of sin. Instead of being the place of grace where anyone could meet God... It had been corrupted and become a den of thieves that kept people away from God. Just think about it. What what an awful corruption to turn something so beautiful into something so wicked. The temple should have been God's house, house with its doors wide open, but the religious leaders had shut its doors and extorted a fee for entry. That's what Jesus says he'll destroy. That corrupt religion, so that he can bring in a truly beautiful kingdom. He will tear down these temple walls, and in himself, he'll establish a new temple. Jesus himself will be a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus himself will be that place of grace where anyone, with all their sin and all their filth and all their baggage, can come and be forgiven by God. Can you hear what he's saying? The old must go before the new can come. 
And if you want to know what's been happening over the last three weeks in Mark 12, this is it. Jesus has entered the temple and he's been destroying and wrecking the three religious groups of his day. The Pharisees, the Sadducees and the scribes. Week after week after week, Jesus has taken them on, torn down the temple so that he might bring in and build up his kingdom. Jesus tears down the temple to bring in his kingdom. And now in chapter 13, verse 1, I want you to see what happens. He walks out of the temple. He turns his back on the temple for the very last time. Can I say, though, it is a beautiful temple. It's a pretty impressive place. A few weeks ago when I was in Singapore, some of us went down to Marina Bay Sands with the infinity pool on level 57. I didn't go there. I just saw from the ground floor. And I thought, wow, wow, what an impressive building. What a remarkable country. All built within just 57 years, as every Singaporean tries to remind me, right? But the temple, now it's even more impressive. The Jewish historian Josephus wrote that the whole temple complex was, quote this, more noteworthy than any under the sun. You could take Marina Bay Sands, the Empire State Building, and the Burj Khalifa, and it wouldn't compare to what you see here. And yet Jesus says in verse 2, no, 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 even something this impressive, you know what? I will tear down to bring in something so much greater. And the disciples ask the question of the day in verse 4. Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? When, Jesus? When will you tear down this temple? When will your kingdom come? Now, in one sense, it's already come, hasn't it? Back in chapter 1, verse 18, what did Jesus say? When he himself came, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. And yet, don't we have that same question? When you look at our world full of depression, disaster, disease, and death, don't we find ourselves asking God, when are you coming? When will your kingdom come? When will you come to make all things new? When will you change my life? When will evil and sin and sickness and death be removed from this world? That's what the disciples were asking. And to be honest, it's so often what I find myself asking. How long, O oh Lord? But I want you to notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't give them a timeline, right? He doesn't give them a timeline for them to try and chart it out and find where they fit in that picture. No, instead he gives them two points of history. Now, I worked very hard on this, right? The first point will be the destruction of the temple, the end of the old order with all of its guilt. That's the first point. And then he stretches it over, all into eternity, to the second point, which will be the coming of the king, the climax of the new order with all of its grace, the destruction of the temple and the coming of the king. And guess where we live? We live in between these two points in history. We live in between the end of all guilt and the climax of grace. And what Jesus is doing, he's not giving us a roadmap or a timeline, he wants to show us how to live in that moment, how to live in that tension, how to wait for that coming day, 
how to wait for our coming king. When our hearts are yearning and broken and wondering, when will God come? How long, O Lord, he has given us Mark 13 to show us how we should live in that tension. He gives us two points, and actually he also gives us two corresponding parables. I wonder if you saw it or heard it when Marcus was reading it for us. The first point is there in verses 5 to 23, and its parable, jump down, is in 28 to 31. And the second point is staggered in verses 24 to 27, and its parable is in verses 32 to 37. Can you see how the passage fits together? Point one, point two, parable one, and parable two. Not too hard. Okay. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the point and parable one, point and parable two, and at the end, we're going to step back and see what Jesus has to say to us today. Point and parable number one, the destruction of the temple. Jesus' disciples ask this question. When will your kingdom come? And his answer? Not before my people suffer. Not before my people suffer. Just follow along in your Bibles with me. In verses 5 to 6, many will come to deceive God's people. They'll claim to be the Messiah. In verses 7 to 8, the whole world will be consumed with wars, earthquakes, and famines. And then Jesus says these crises will be the beginning of birth pains, the the, the contractions that will give way to God's eternal kingdom. In verses 9 to 13, God's people will be persecuted. They'll be arrested, handed over, and beaten, just like Jesus, for Jesus' sake. This is the verse that really gets me, actually, verse 12. They'll be betrayed even by their own flesh and blood. There's few things more painful than that. Verse 13 could have been clearer. You'll be hated by everyone because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. I mean, the Holy Spirit will give them the words to speak as they face their enemies, and here's the assurance, even in their suffering, the gospel will still go forward. But we must not understate this, the suffering is real. Verses 14 to 23, we read, God's people will endure a tribulation so great that if God himself did not cut it short, it would end them all. You see, friends, these will be difficult days for God's people. And they will be brought on by something or someone called the abomination of desolation. The abomination of desolation. You know, that phrase in verse 14, it points back to a vision of the prophet Daniel 600 years earlier. And I want you to hear what the prophet Daniel said 600 years before this time in chapter 11, verse 31. We read about a king. And Daniel speaks of a king whose army will rise up and desecrate the temple fortress. They will abolish the regular sacrifice and set up the, there it is, the abomination of desolation. You see, Daniel spoke of a king who would one day come and desecrate and destroy God's temple. That was 600 years ago. Now fast forward 600 years later, and Jesus says, guess what? That moment has finally come. A king is coming who will desecrate and destroy my temple. A king is coming who will persecute my people. And when that king comes, you better pray it's not winter. Because if it's the dead of night and the cold of winter, you won't survive it. 
The disciples asked the question, Jesus, when will your kingdom come? And Jesus has this hard message. Not before my people suffer. Let's pause there. What should we make of all of this? I love the church I grew up in. It was a church that loved the Lord dearly. And everyone that you could just see how much their hearts were filled with a bursting love for the Lord. But, but, when it came to passages like this, we were less than helpful. There would always be a number of aunties in my church who would read these verses as if they were a timeline of history. And they would read the news, or WeChat, or whatever's online, and go, there's an earthquake in China. And say, look, earthquake, right? Jesus is coming soon. And I'm like, yeah, it's kind of true. Jesus is coming soon. But these verses aren't talking about us right now. They're talking about the Christians back then. Jump down. Do you notice that in the parable of the fig tree, the story that explains this point right there in verse 30, what does Jesus say? Verse 30, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. You see, this generation is their generation, the disciples' generation. The suffering that Jesus anticipates is not ours. It's theirs. It's what the first Christians actually experienced just a few years later. For them, these events lay in the near future. But for us, they lie in the distant past. Let me explain. Forty years after this moment when Jesus is speaking, this is what will happen. Caesar Titus will attack Jerusalem, he'll set fire to the temple, and he'll walk into the Holy of Holies where no one else was meant to go. This is how Josephus describes these events, and I want you to see if it kind of matches up with what Jesus said would happen. This is what he says. As the Jewish partisans had fled into the city, and flames were consuming the sanctuary itself and all its surroundings, the Romans brought their standards, that is their flags, into the temple area, And erecting them opposite the east gate, they sacrificed to them there with thunderous acclamation. They hailed Titus as emperor. Can you hear what happened? In 70 AD, just as Jesus said, 40 years after he said it, a king would come, desecrate the temple, make sacrifices to himself in God's house, destroy the temple, and burn Jerusalem to the ground. You see, we don't have to be like those wonderful God-fearing aunties at my old church, wondering, will Jesus fulfill this? We can read it knowing that he already has. These, These words refer to events that have happened 40 years after Jesus said it. When will your kingdom come? The disciples asked. Jesus says, not before my people suffer. And that is quite literally what happened. God allowed the temple to be desecrated and destroyed, and the old order with all its guilt finally came to an end. And when it did, God's people were hated and persecuted by all. Why is Jesus saying all of this to his disciples? He's not saying it, as I said, to give them a timeline of history or a timeline of the coming kingdom. No, he's saying it to prepare them for the suffering to come. He wants them to suffer well. He wants them to persevere. He wants them to hold on. He wants them to not give up when the going gets tough. Forewarned is forearmed. 
That's the first point. And the first parable, the destruction of the temple. Track with me now. We're almost there. The second point and the second parable. The coming of the king. When will your kingdom come? Now Jesus says, before you even know it. Before you even know it. You see, if everything in that first point and parable is referring to something that happened in the past, then everything in this second point and parable is referring to what will happen in the future. Verse 24 tells us that all of creation will tremble at the coming of the king. The sun, the moon, and the stars, nothing will be left unaffected. Everything will be changed when Jesus comes and brings heaven to earth. For in verse 26, those who are alive will see the Son of Man coming in clouds of great power and glory. You see, the prophet Daniel used that title, the Son of Man, to describe the coming king. 600 years earlier, he wrote about the abomination of desolation, that great tragedy that would come, that king in the world who would desecrate God's temple. But that's not the only king that he saw. He also saw that 600 years later or into the future, another king would come. And this king would not be the abomination of desolation. This king would be God's king. He would be the son of man who would destroy the abomination of desolation. Just look with me at what he wrote in chapter 7, verse 13. I continued watching in the night visions. And suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, so that those of every people, nation and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Friends, do you see what Daniel saw Yes, the abomination will come and destroy God's temple. But the Son of Man will come and rule God's world. And that Son of Man will be far more powerful than the abomination. He'll be far more powerful than any king. He'll be far more powerful than any nation. He'll be so powerful that every king, every power, and all creation will tremble at His coming. And when he comes, here's what he'll do. He'll send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. Jesus will rescue every one of his people from wherever we might be. And he will bring us home into the kingdom of God. That is good news. It is the case that living in Melbourne in 2023, very few of us, I suspect, will be physically persecuted for the gospel, though I could be wrong. Our lives, more likely, will be marked much more by what we saw in 1 Peter last year, won't it? Low-level, ongoing social rejection. But we shouldn't forget, that puts us in the minority of the majority. It puts us in the minority of Christians who are the majority of persecuted people in the world. You might not get that impression living in Australia, but Christians are the most persecuted religious group in the entire world. 
Even right now, Christian brothers and sisters, men and women, are locked up in cells in the most obscure parts of this world with no one around them. All because they follow the same Jesus that you and I follow. And I want you to imagine the comfort that they must feel hearing that none of their suffering is beyond the sovereign rescue of God. Can you imagine that? Being in a jail cell, all alone, forsaken by all your family and friends. Not even that is beyond the sovereign rescue of God. And can I say, if that suffering so extreme is not beyond the sovereign rescue of God, neither is any of our suffering. Neither is any of our suffering. One day Jesus will come and He will find us wherever we might be and He will welcome us into His everlasting kingdom. But when? I mean, that's the question, isn't it? When? How long must we wait? When will His kingdom come? And Jesus says, before you even know it. Before you even know it. I know that recently uh, some of us, a fair few of us have been traveling. It's good to see uh, a number of us home. And we've all had that experience, haven't we? we? We leave and we need someone to look after our dog, our cat or our house. And so we ask a friend, good friend. How would you feel if you came home early and unannounced, only to discover that your dog was missing, your cat was sick and your house was robbed? And then to find out that your friend had never really looked after your place at all. And in the time where you asked them to look after it, they were asleep at home. Never turned up, never wheeled out the bins. And of such great consequence now. In verses 32 to 37, Jesus tells a parable about a man who goes on a journey just like that. And he leaves his place to a house sitter just like we might. But the house sitter doesn't know when that man will return. And Jesus says the worst thing imaginable would be for that man to return early and unannounced and find his house sitter asleep at the wheel. Can you hear the point that Jesus is making? Just like that house sitter, you don't know when I'm coming back. No one does. But I will be back before you know it. And when I come, please don't be asleep. Please don't have given up. Jesus says, gosh, I hope that when I come back, I'll find you faithful, persevering, still trusting me, even through the greatest suffering. Just like he did with that first point and parable, Jesus is preparing his disciples to suffer. He's calling them to suffer today, but with an eye to tomorrow. To suffer through the coming persecution with an eye to our coming King. Don't fall asleep. Don't give in. Don't give up. It's also a comforting message though, isn't it? Because Jesus is also saying, as surely as the temple will fall, I will return. You can check it up. It's there in history. 70 AD, the temple fell. Just as that temple historically, really, actually fell, I will historically, really, and actually return. 
And here's what I'll do when I come. I'll, I'll rescue you into my kingdom. I'll bring you home. I'll, I'll end your suffering. Isn't that something to look forward to? Jesus, when will your kingdom come? Not before my people suffer, but before you even know it. So keep watch. Stay alert. Look for my coming. Well, what does all of this mean for us? Because if you think about it, I've just, told you, I've just explained the entire passage and said, that's not you. We aren't the first disciples in the first century. What does this mean for all of us? Well, I'm going to close now by speaking to two groups of people. Two groups of people who are here today. Firstly, I want to speak to people who don't call themselves a Christian, don't identify as a Christian, don't see yourself as someone who follows Jesus. And secondly, I want to speak to those of us who do follow Jesus, for those of us who at least should be waiting for his coming. Firstly, if you're not a follower of Jesus, there's a simple but important message for you today, and it's this. Jesus is returning soon. Jesus is returning soon. And when he comes, he'll establish his kingdom of everlasting life, love, and freedom. It'll be a world where darkness will be dispelled, evil will be eradicated, death will have died. This kingdom will be Jesus' beautiful reign and blessed rule over every heart in our world. And the question for you today is this, will you be in that kingdom? Will you be in that kingdom? Because the only way you get into that kingdom is through the king. It's through Jesus. He is the kingdom himself. He is the new temple. He is that place of grace. He is the fountain of forgiveness. He himself is the house of God. And he tells us exactly how it is that we get into the kingdom. We repent and believe. We turn and trust. We turn away from living for ourselves and we start trusting in Jesus. We stop living as the ruler of our own lives and we start living with Jesus as our King. Just as surely, historically, and actually as that temple fell in 70 AD, Jesus will surely, historically, and actually come in the future. And when he comes, will you be someone that he gathers into his kingdom. And Jesus is returning soon. Finally, for those of us who do follow Jesus, for those of us who call him our king, for those of us who are waiting every day for his coming, what does God want for us this day? Here it is. Keep calm and carry on preaching the gospel. Keep calm and carry on preaching the gospel. In World War II, uh, the British government produced motivational posters, many of which you will have seen before, refitted as memes to every possible thing, and it read, keep calm and carry on. Those words were intended to help the British people persevere through the war. To accept the reality of battle, and to hold the line through it all. And friends, I want to say the same is true of us. 
Well, yes, it's true. These sufferings in Mark 13, they might not be about us, right? They're actually about the first Christians in the first century. But it is still true that it's not easy to live as a Christian in our world today. We should expect to suffer just as Jesus did. In fact, what does verse 9 say? They will hand you over to the local courts and you'll be flogged in the synagogues. That language of handed over is the same language that describes exactly what happened to Jesus. So we must not be surprised when we suffer for our King. We must not be surprised when our relationships strain and fracture on account of following Jesus. I find verse 12 right there probably the most heartbreaking of them all. Just look at it. Look at it. What does it say? It says that even our suffering for the kingdom will extend to our families being split. The relationship between husbands and wives and parents and children fractured over the gospel. I don't have children of my own, but I'm almost willing to bet that if if you're a parent, I suspect you'd read a lot about all the other suffering in chapter 13. And you'd almost be willing to endure it all but for that one. To lose someone you love that much, to have them betray you, or your relationship fracture on account of the Lord Jesus. I talk to a lot of you here. And I know that almost there is almost no family in our church where everyone as such is a faithful believer walking with the Lord. If that's your family, you should praise God for that every day. You really should. But the reality of verse 12 describes actually far more Christian families than we would care to admit. Isn't it heartbreaking to see a strained relationship with our parents, our siblings, our children, Because we follow the Lord Jesus and they don't. And yet it shouldn't be a surprise. It's heartbreaking. But it shouldn't be a surprise. In fact, if we expect to eradicate that suffering in our lives, I suspect we will just succumb to bitterness and despair. It's there. It's not changing anytime soon. We must accept the reality of our suffering. But what do we do in that? We must carry on preaching the gospel. That's the priority there in verse 10. That in the midst of our suffering, it is necessary that the gospel be preached to all nations. You know, that's why Jesus destroyed the temple. So that in his own body, he can be a new temple. Where people from every tribe can come and find forgiveness. And he calls us in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our fractured and broken relationships with our children, with our parents, with our siblings who don't follow the Lord, to preach the gospel still, persistently, so that people from every nation, maybe even them, might come home to his kingdom. So as we suffer those strained relationships, 
those distant relationships, as we long for our brothers, our sisters, our mothers, our fathers, our sons, our daughters, to come home to the Lord Jesus, do not give up on the only means of salvation. Do not give up on preaching the gospel. As we're rejected by our friends, distanced from our family, don't give up on them. God might yet use our prayers and proclamation through our suffering to save them into his kingdom. Keep calm through all the heartache and carry on preaching the gospel. It's hard. It's hard. And I know the only way we'll ever do it is if we fix our eyes on the coming king. It's the only way we'll be able to do it. Did you notice how many times sight is mentioned in this chapter? It's a bit obscured in the English, but Jesus calls his disciples three times in verses 5, 9, and 23, watch out, look, be alert for suffering. But let me ask, what sight is it that will inspire our hope, that will dispel our fear, that will strengthen our courage, that will enable us to keep calm in the midst of our suffering and persecution and heartache and carry on preaching the gospel? What sight is it that will motivate us and propel us forward when everything in us just wants to give up? Verse 26, when we see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. You see, friends, we should look with alertness as the suffering that comes our way, but we must look with an even greater anticipation at our Saviour who is on His way. For He is the Son of Man, Greater even than the abomination of desolation, greater than any obstacle, any power, any unbelief, when we look at him, whom shall we fear? The only sight that will see us through the greatest suffering is the sight of our coming King. Fix your eyes on him. Verse 12 has just kind of gripped me for uh, most of this sermon as I've thought about it. The other night I was speaking with some people in our church and we're talking about uh, the blessing of having children. None of us have them, but, you know, we could talk about them. It doesn't stop us from doing it. Um, but not just the blessing, but the, imme- the, the immense responsibility, the burden, the weight of, of bringing a child into this world and, and raising them to know and love the Lord. And we reflected that actually the most terrifying thought is that you would pour your life and your faith and your heart into this child who then chooses to walk away from the Lord. Some of you will know that pain all too well. And that in that child potentially walking away from God had actually created distance and, and, and suffering and pain between you and your own child. And as people who are looking to the future, thinking about children in that way, we're thinking like, what, how, what do you do in a moment like that? What can you do in a moment like that? I mean, you can't will the situation away. You can't chain them to the pew, though you might want to, right? 
And it's kind of fruitless becoming bitter and resentful about it. What more can we do other than keep calm and carry on preaching the gospel in the hope that our suffering and our suffering witness and prayers may yet bring this son or daughter back to the Lord. And when all of our hope seems gone, when they've wandered so far, maybe not our child, maybe our brother, our sister, our friend, we must fix our eyes on the coming King and remember that He is coming and He will set all things right. He will gather His people home. And who knows, he might yet use our suffering prayers and proclamation, our persistent preaching of the gospel through the hardest of times to bring home and gather home our son, our daughter, our brother, our sister, our mother, our father, our friend as well. Wouldn't that be amazing? The disciples asked Jesus, when will your kingdom come? And Jesus says, not before my people suffer, but it'll be before you even know it. So keep calm and carry on preaching the gospel and fix your eyes on me. Can I pray? God, life is not easy, and living as Christians following the Lord Jesus is not easy as well. We know that following the Lord Jesus brings suffering and pain, sometimes with those who are closest to us. And so we ask, God, that in the midst of the difficulties of following you, with the heartache of seeing those we love wander from you far away, please, God, Help us keep calm and carry on preaching the gospel, trusting you, God, to take your gospel forward, to gather your people home. God, we take this moment right now to pray for those in our lives who we love, our friends and our family, who we so desperately long to come to faith in your Son, to turn back to you. We pray for them, pleading with you that, God, you might show mercy on them, and bring them home to yourself. Gather them home, God. Open their eyes. Turn their eyes on the Lord Jesus and help them see that in Him are all the riches and fullness of joy and a kingdom everlasting. And these things we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.